Locked On Dolphins, hosted by Travis Wingfield. Your daily podcast on the Miami Dolphins. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Your team every day. I'm in town to play the Dolphins, you dumbass. This is seriously take number four. What is up, Dolphins? And welcome into the Monday, October the 21st edition of the Locked On Dolphins podcast. I am your host, Travis Wingfield. And as always, I am here to bring you your daily dose of Miami Dolphins football. And on today's show, the Finns outplay Buffalo, but come up short once again and fall to 0-6 on the season. We'll get you the five takeaways from Miami's most encouraging showing of the season, plus the individual evaluations, what it's going to take to be a Dolphin in 2020, and we'll update you on the draft order and all of Miami's current standing for their three first-round picks. We'll recap a busy weekend of scouting college football and do a quick spin around the NFL. All of that and more on a busy show. But first, before any of that, I kindly invite each and every one of you to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcast. Leave us a rating. Leave us a review. Give me a follow on Twitter. It's at WingfieldNFL. Voted the number one follow on Dolphins Twitter by Dolphins Twitter. You can follow the show at LockedOnFins. We'll follow you back. And check out LockedOnDolphins.com. We have the written content for this game and all the video breakdowns up there as well. We got a busy show. Let's go ahead and jump right in. That's another Miami Dolphins. So just a few key takeaways from this game and what transpired on Sunday as the Dolphins nearly pulled off a victory in a game where they were 17-point underdogs and all they did was outpass, outgain, and outconvert on third down and fourth down better than what Buffalo did in this game, a 5-1 outfit taking on an 0-5 outfit as Miami nearly pulls the upset at the hands of the whirling dervish himself, the 15-year-old veteran quarterback, the lasagna-eating quarterback, and that's where we start with the takeaways. And that lasagna anecdote, if you didn't hear it on the broadcast on Sunday, they mentioned that Fitzpatrick got into town late on Saturday with the team and went to dinner and had a big lasagna dinner, which is just hilarious to me because if I ate something like that, what, 16 hours before kickoff, I would be useless for at least 24 hours, not able to go out there and run around and make plays like Fitzpatrick, but of course, the 36-year-old that he is is capable of doing it and damn near won the game. And that's point number one. If Ryan Fitzpatrick plays the rest of the way, this team is going to find a way to win a game because that's a good Buffalo team, a very good Buffalo defense that Miami went up and down the field on for the most part in this contest. They outpossessed Buffalo, more time of possession, and we talked about it, had way more passing yards than the Buffalo Bills in this game. And the promising aspect of this game, what you kind of learned from Ryan Fitzpatrick over Josh Rosen, is the offensive structure of the scheme that Chad O'Shea wants to run. The timing, the rhythm, the quick short passes, having designs and concepts that create openings in the passing game and quick decisions for the quarterback, a scheme that empowers a quarterback, especially one that is a cerebral processor like Fitzpatrick more so than what Josh Rosen is. When you process this thing quickly, the ball comes out, it mitigates poor protection and makes everything look better. Why do you think I want a quarterback in college football who's the very best at that? And that's ultimately the biggest takeaway from this game. I just can't wait to get a young, sharp, 22-year-old quarterback in there that can do the things that Fitzpatrick does mentally, but give you way more physically. That's what we're in line to do. That's what the goal is this season. But shoot, if you want that first pick in the draft, 
you might have to take Fitzpatrick out of the lineup or just trade him on Tuesday because right now, Josh Rosen would make me feel way more comfortable about getting that first pick. Takeaway number two, Brian Flores is my coach. He's my guy. I committed to him back in training camp when I saw him speak. I saw the way he conducted himself. I saw the practices that he ran. I told you guys I thought he would be the first coach to go five years since Don Shula was in charge around here. And I think, I believe that's going to be what the case is here with Brian Flores. The biggest thing I want to point out are the penalties. The last three weeks, the Dolphins have 16 penalties. So just over five per game for 151 total yards. That's an average of 51 penalty yards per game. The league average is 75-ish yards per game. I'm not exactly sure on that number. Tough to find. But it goes back to the TNT, the takes no talent wall, and getting that message across getting guys playing hard but also smart, and finding guys that are wired the right way to play this game, which comes with so much adversity and so many obstacles and so much hard work. That's what he's trying to get. I love the fact that he has ultimate accountability. I love the structure of this defense, which we'll talk about here in the next takeaway. I love the decisions that he makes in close situations and fourth down, going for it, fake field goals, fake punts. And I think let's go ahead and give him a reprieve on the quarterback decision this week because you guys know who you were that gave him so much crap for that, but you can't knock the team for tanking and then get mad when they make a switch to the quarterback who is clearly a better player. The Dolphins scored one touchdown in the last 11 quarters under Josh Rosen. They took the fourth quarter from last week and this week combined Miami has four touchdowns in five quarters under Ryan Fitzpatrick. Takeaway number three, the defensive structure of Brian Flores and Patrick Graham. I can't wait till they get their own guys in here, the right guys. We saw the Amoeba defense, radar package, whatever it's called, guys standing up at the line of scrimmage in two-point stances trying to pick their gaps and rushing the passer accordingly and trying to hem Josh Allen into the pocket and keep him there and make him beat you from there. We saw how many throws he missed. Consider that last year he went for two rushing touchdowns and 230 rushing yards in those two games against the Dolphins last year. 115 yards per game. Today just four carries for 32 yards. They played that gap control style of pass rush, that gap control style of run defense. You take away what the quarterback wants to do, what he's best at doing, and that's what Miami did for the most part against Josh Allen. They weren't great overall against the run. 5.09 yards per carry, 23 carries for 117 yards, but forcing Allen to try to beat them in the intermediate and deep range of the field, he struggled to do that. They also buckled down in the red zone early in this game, and that's going to be super beneficial when this offense is more consistent and can put teams behind on the scoreboard with touchdown drives in the first half by matching their field goals with touchdowns. That's how you get 21 to nine leads at the halftime break. And then you unleash your aggressive defense. Takeaway number four, short yardage success and third down conversion percentages. They run the ball this year on third and short. They go 22 personnel, two backs, two tight ends and run the ball behind the fullback. They've got 13 personnel packages. They've gone heavy, six offensive linemen. They find a way to get those chains moved and they're doing it with far less talent on the offensive line. No Tunzel, no Jawan James, no even Ted Larson for that matter. A bunch of undrafted free agents, a guy in Evan Bain, they traded a seventh round conditional draft pick for. We'll talk about him in segment number two. They're converting these third and shorts, which is three yards and less, at 13 for 17, 76.6%. Last year, they were 20 for 41, less than half the time. That's toughness, that's desire, that's will, something you won't get from a coach that lacks gumption and accountability, but you will get it with a leader like Brian Flores. 
Takeaway number five is going to have to come on the other side because I'm short on time. And now I want to tell you guys about Peloton. If you can't find a workout that keeps you engaged, Peloton is an immersive cardio experience with real-time features that will always keep you coming back for more. Get $100 off accessories when you purchase the Peloton bike and get a great cardio workout from home. Go to OnePeloton.com and use promo code LOCKED to get started today. And after you've removed all those bodily fluids from the workout, why not do the same in the bedroom? And now you can do that with Blue Chew. Guys, listen up. BlueChew.com, that's blue like the color blue. Blue Chew brings you the first chewable with the same FDA-approved active ingredients as Viagra and Cialis, so you know they work. You can take them anytime, day, night, even on a full stomach. And since they work up to twice as fast as a pill, you can be ready whenever the opportunity arises. Whether you're dating a supermodel and your guy just doesn't work, or maybe you're married to an offensive lineman type and you just need the extra boost to get yourself going, Blue Chew is not just for guys who can't perform. It's for any guy who wants extra function to enhance their performance in the bedroom. Blue Chew is prescribed online and ships straight to your door in a discreet package, so no in-person doctor's visit, no waiting in the pharmacy, and best of all, no more awkwardness. They're made in the USA, and since Blue Chew prepares and ships direct, they're cheaper than a pharmacy. Right now, we've got a special deal for our listeners. Visit BlueChew.com and get your first shipment free when using our special promo code. It's MLB. Just pay $5 shipping. Again, that's B-L-U-E-Chew.com. Promo code MLB to try it for free. Blue Chew is the better, cheaper, faster choice, and we thank them for sponsoring the Locked On Dolphins podcast. One more takeaway to get to here on the podcast before we jump into our individual takeaways and evaluations. We talked about the short yardage success, the defensive structure taking hold, Ryan Fitzpatrick and this offense taking hold under Chad O'Shea's scheme, and of course, Brian Flores getting his message across with penalties and accountability. The fifth takeaway here is that this game, and I hate to say it, it was a perfect loss. Let's just be real about that. We got evaluations on a bunch of guys that suddenly looked like long-term fits, and we'll talk about those guys in the, in the next segment here. We saw an exciting game where Miami beat Buffalo in a lot of the major categories and just came up short at the end, and it didn't impact the ultimate goal of landing the first pick and QB1 on the board, who of course remains Tua Tonga-Vailoa. Let's just be clear about that. We'll talk more about him in the next segment as well. A game in this one that inspires confidence in the coaching staff a game that gave you some hope on the offensive line and a game that produced some really good looks into the future of a skill player at each of the three spots, receiver, tight end, running back, and Williams, Gasicki, and Walton. And some final housekeeping notes here before we do dive into the individual evaluations. Some key points in this game. Obviously, that interception late in the first half turned the tide. Could have been a 21-9 lead for Miami if they finished that drive after a fake fumble, or after a fake field goal, rather, that gets a first down at the two-yard line on a Matt Hawk run on fourth and one. Loved the onions on that call. That was fun to see. Then Jordan Phillips gets free on an unblocked rush and sacks Ryan Fitzpatrick. Easily could have picked up a fumble if he wasn't busy yapping his gums at the Dolphins sideline so the ball goes back to Miami at the 10 yard line and then Ryan Fitzpatrick throws a pick and the Buffalo Bills go down the field and I don't think they scored at that point but it definitely took the Dolphins away from a two score lead the Dolphins just have to learn how to win they have to learn how to figure it out in the 
second half. They have the third worst scoring differential in NFL history in the second half through six weeks and the worst scoring differential through six games in second halves of games in the Super Bowl era. So my question is, I'm not really sure what happens here. I still kind of subscribe to the idea that the coaches are just out of options at that point. Like there's only so much of a game plan you can cook up in a given week with the lack of talent on this roster and that's all they've got. So they give it a go and it lasts for two, two and a half, three quarters and then things start to fall apart. But again, guys are playing hard. They seem to be enjoying themselves out there, which is great. And as much as they continue to try to find out which of these guys are going to be on the roster next year, it almost feels like an opportunity to find out which of these guys are wired the right way and cut from that cloth of indestructible mindsets and personalities for how to work and overcome the obstacles and all of the adversity you'll face as an NFL player. And then one last note, as I was watching the ALCS on Saturday night in light of Jose Altuve's walk-off homer to send the Astros to the World Series, a guy that was there during some awful Astros seasons, now he gets to be the face of a consistent championship contender. So that's the thought here. That's been the goal all along, and it seems like we we might be adding to that list of keepers going forward. And with that, let's talk about the individuals here and where else will we start besides the quarterbacks? Or I guess now we can just say the quarterback and Ryan Fitzpatrick and what he did to spark this offense with 272 passing yards on the day. I think he had like 288. In fact, let's go ahead and just check that real quick. As Fitzpatrick completed 23 of 35 passes for 282 yards and 8.1 yards per average clip, one touchdown and the one pick. And of course, he ran for a touchdown on six carries and 13 yards there. He just got the football out quicker. We talked about it in that first segment. Got some guys involved in the game plan, throwing those dig routes on timing patterns, getting the ball out quick on his hot routes against pressure and blitzes. I just thought he played really well and gave us a chance to give the rest of the offense an evaluation, which we did, especially at running back. And now I think we've seen the last game that Kenyon Drake has played for the Dolphins. I think the plan is to go ahead and trade Kenyon Drake. And we saw him get a reduced workload this week in favor of Miami native and second year pro from the University of Miami, Mark Walton, who had runs of 19, 12, 8, and 8. He shows exceptional vision and he drops his shoulder and explodes through the smallest of creases, the most attractive available crease on the offensive line. Though those big runs did contribute big time to the offense. He had a few runs for no gain or losses. So he had 14 carries for 66 yards on the day and one catch for negative eight yards. Drake did catch three of his four targets for 37 yards, but again, just 10 touches compared to Mark Walton's 15 touches on the day. Walton has taken over that job. Kalen Balaj got three carries, no targets in the passing game. He scored a touchdown and had seven rushing yards. And Chandler Cox was in there. He was in the game for one of the third and one conversions we talked about as a lead blocker from the fullback position. At the receiver and tight end position, we got more promising news about the future of these positions. With Preston Williams first, we have to talk about him. He came into this game catching almost 40% of his passes. And in this game, he catches six out of eight. So he increases his catch percentage and had a really nice takeoff route for 37 yards against Levi Wallace, where he shook him at the line of scrimmage. He caught a few dig routes and I think one outbreaking pass as well. Another good looking day from Preston Williams, but ball security got to put that thing away. His fumble at the 16 yard line gave Buffalo prime position to put the game away. Devontae Parker continues to make plays. He only caught five of 10 for 55 yards. Not a great day, but he did score his team high third touchdown. And suddenly he is like reliable and consistent. We're getting these kind of performances every week from Parker. 
Who knew? And then we have to talk about Mike Gesicki, who caught four of all four of his targets, I should say, for 41 yards, and his most impressive catch got called back, a 27-yard stab down the seam. It seemed like every catch he made, he was spinning and twirling through the air and plucking that thing out of the sky. I keep talking about it. Mike Gesicki's coming on, and we're seeing more and more of that now, especially with Ryan Fitzpatrick. Durham Smythe, I love his blocking. That's what he is. He's a blocking tight end. I think he's at his best when he pulls from one side of the formation to the other and leads up into the hole and gets his back through that hole. On the offensive line, a much better performance today. They allowed one sack on the first play of the game, although it was a double pass back to Albert Wilson, who didn't throw the ball away. He eats a sack. And the most notable change was the center, Evan Bame. So where you're finding Mike Gesicki and Preston Williams and Mark Walton as possible fits next year, Evan Bame has a chance to be the center on this team now because of his competitive toughness and the ability to get the pass protection calls right. He and Fitzpatrick were on point in this one again as he replaces Dan Kilgore and all of a sudden the Dolphins allowed zero sacks on the game. He also did some great work digging out some guys and sealing off gaps in the running game. So did Shaq Calhoun who played at right guard in this one, but perhaps he got into Fitzpatrick's lasagna at halftime because he was replaced in the third quarter by Chris Reed and would later return. We heard it was an illness. I think he might have had the poops back in the locker room. Anyway, he came back into the game and played pretty well, I thought. I thought Chris Reed played well in his absence, and I thought Michael Dieter had his best game as a pro at left guard as well, although he did get flagged for the first time in his NFL career. Jesse Davis played fine. I think Jamarcus Webb was the weak spot today. That's where all the pressure came from on Fitzpatrick. On the defensive side, Christian Wilkins ejected from the game on the second play. There's a video of it on my Twitter timeline on LockedOnDolphins.com in the recap article. The officials call it a punch. I'm not really sure if I would classify it as that. Looks more like hand fighting, but he was super apologetic after the game and he felt terrible saying, I was extremely selfish. This is the ultimate team sport. It's not just about me. I don't think I've ever been more disappointed in myself about something, especially something that was in my control. Really, really shouldn't have happened, end quote. So you see why they love Wilkins for the way he talks in the media, the personality and the character that he has. He Definitely feels bad about this. I think he'll be fine. But again, his play hasn't really lived up to the hype so far. So people are, of course, are going to start taking shots. But all things told, the Dolphins allow the Bills to go for 123 yards on 17 carries, over five yards per carry. Frank Gore had 55 on 11. Josh Allen, 32 on four. And so I can't give the run defense a passing grade. I thought Taco Charlton played okay in this one. Picked up his third sack, although it was a cleanup effort of a blitz by Nick Needham. And Charles Harris, once again, pretty much invisible. Jerome Baker all over the field. He had a great pass coverage rep where he carried Dawson Knox up the sideline on a fade pass that went way over his head because he was too tight in coverage. He put pressure on Allen with an A-gap blitz and they showed that amoeba package. And I think Jerome Baker starting to find his fit in this defense. That's a great sign going forward. Raekwon McMillan did miss a big tackle in this game, but had six more. He's been solid in that regard. And Vince Beagle gets his second sack and more pressure on the quarterback. Hard to believe Miami got him for Kiko Alonso, a player they were going to cut anyway. I talked about Nick Needham, 0 for 3 trying his target areas last week. I believe it was 0 for 1 this week. And the one that he did get was a one-on-one coverage responsibility to the field, which means the wide side of the field. And that's a big boy responsibility, a two-way go, a takeoff or cross face on a slant. Needham, there's a video of him covering that up on LockedOnDolphins.com. He played well 
again for the Dolphins. Ryan Lewis, the new guy, had a tough game. Jamal Wiltz, I thought, made a few plays in this game. And Bobby McCain had a quiet game. He's almost always 15, 20 yards off the ball in that single high safety look. So it's tough to get a feel for what he's doing. But if he's not getting beat deep, I think that's a pretty good game. He supports the run game. He covers the slot. So all things told, nobody in this locker room wants to hear about moral victories. But this game, to me, is just that, a moral victory. Competitive with a team who's only lost so far this season is against an unbeaten Patriot squad. And they were probably just one red zone failure away, the Dolphins were, from pulling off an upset as 17-point dogs. They found some energy in the offense. They suddenly have an offensive line that has shown life, a 100-yard rushing performance for the first time for the team. And of course, zero sacks on the day of their quarterback. They're putting together competitive plans on defense and executing Brian Flores' vision for this team. As even though they allowed 31 points in the game, two of those touchdowns came on a returned onside kick and a short field after a fumble recovery at the 16-yard line for Buffalo. So I think the first pick in the draft still likely comes down to that Week 16 game against the Bengals. And with the news of Tua Tungavailoa's ankle injury not being that serious, I think Miami winning the battle in this game but losing the result Sunday was the absolute perfect outcome you could have asked for as a Dolphins fan. And on the topic of Tua's ankle and trying to get that first overall draft pick, we're going to come back and talk about the weekend that was in college football. We'll talk about Ryan Tannehill's performance on Sunday. We'll talk about where Miami is in the draft order. And of course, everything around this quarterback class. All of that next. Locked on Dolphins podcast at Wingfield NFL at Locked on Fins. I was hoping the Bengals would do the Dolphins a favor and pull off a late win against the Jacksonville Jaguars. They actually had a lead in the second half and eventually blew that lead with Andy Dalton turning the football over three times. The Bengals are legitimate competition for that first pick in next April's draft. And right now, frankly, they look like the favorites to snag it because it just is hard to find a win for them. And the way the Dolphins played on Sunday, they might have a chance to find a couple of wins on the schedule. Hopefully that's not the case because while it would be great to see this team grow and improve, we have to keep sight of the ultimate goal, the top quarterback. That is what's going to change this franchise long-term. And in order to do that, Dolphins, of course, are going to have to finish below the Bengals in the final standings. And we turn our attention now to the tank tracker up on LockedOnDolphins.com, tracking the Steelers, the Texans, the Bengals, and Washington and Miami's pursuit of higher draft picks and the first draft pick. And of course, the strength of schedule and how that shakes out. Now, strength of schedule is the first tiebreaker when it comes to draft order. The team with the lowest strength of schedule in a tie gets the higher draft pick in the first round. And then, of course, those two teams will flip in the draft order in the next round and continue going in that snake draft fashion for the rest of the draft. So it's good for the first round, not good for the second round. But in this case, who gives a damn? It's all about the quarterback. And so the Bengals fall to 0-7. They currently are first in the draft, and Washington falls to the Niners in a torrential downpour out in Washington. So they are 1-6 and and picking third behind the Dolphins, who are currently picking second. So Miami's current draft picks are second, their own pick, 10th from the Steelers, and 22nd from Houston. Houston lost today. Pittsburgh was off this week, and so Miami improves one of those picks. One of those picks falls backwards. But I think the most important thing to keep an eye on here, as the Dolphins get a bit of a buffer here from the tie-breaking scenarios, is the strength of schedule. Miami's is at 480 right now. Cincinnati's at 536 and Washington at 556. Those schedules include all the games the Dolphins have played and have not played. So there's not going to be a big variance to it overall. So for the Bengals to close 
56 points of strength of schedule. Probably not going to happen. So Miami might have some room for error in this season if they win a game and then they go to play the Bengals and the Bengals then win that game and both teams are 1-15. The Dolphins probably get the advantage. So a very, very important thing to watch and track this year, the strength of schedule between Miami and these other teams competing for that first pick in next year's draft. And before we get into next year's draft and college football from the weekend, I got a bunch of scouting done on quarterbacks and players all over the field. I got to talk about my guy real quick because he had a big game on Sunday as the Titans win over the Chargers. Ryan Tannehill, his first 300-yard passing performance since, get this, week three of 2016. That was against the Browns, the third game of Ryan Tannehill and Adam Gase together. Tannehill never again went over 300 yards under Adam Gase kind of speaks to his conservative nature and what that passing offense was designed to do. But Tannehill in his first start in the post-Gaze era goes over 300 yards. He threw for two touchdowns and one interception and his yards per attempt was up over 10 yards per throw as he had 312 yards on 29 passes, completed almost 80% and a 120.1 passer rating, converted a bunch of third downs. Great game, Tannehill. That was fun to watch. And it helps the Dolphins in that strength of schedule battle because they did play the Chargers earlier this year. So so all things good. Okay, let's go ahead and talk about the college weekend scouting update up on LockedOnDolphins.com. Every week we're looking at the quarterbacks and some other players that Miami might target in rounds one and two. And first, Tua's ankle injury. Sounds like he's going to have the exact same procedure, or he already did, I should say, on Sunday morning that he had last year. It's the opposite ankle. They expect him to miss next week against Arkansas, which, by the way, would be his first career miss game in college football. Never missed a game before until now. He's going to miss that game, have the bye week, and then come back the next week against LSU. And that's going to be a good test for him because he's probably going to be a quarterback restricted to the pocket in a big showdown against a good pass rush and better secondary. It'll be a great test for Tua and that timing offense of the Crimson Tide. And when Tua left the game, the offense put together one touchdown drive in that second half. And that drive was aided by a questionable defensive pass interference call on a third down that extended that drive. And so this offense goes from scoring 51 points per game under Tua to just seven offensive points in a half with the backup quarterback. So Tua, he had his worst decision of the season. He went 11 for 12 for 155 yards, threw a pick, made some big plays down the field, but that interception was an egregious decision. Started off looking awfully Russell Wilson, going backwards, evading pressure, attacked the line of scrimmage, and then threw it right to the defense. Not sure what he was doing or what he saw there. Just a bad play. In LSU, Joe Burrow was fantastic in this game. The timing and rhythm, the off-script ability. He made a great play where he evaded the rush, stepped up and threw a strike down the field. He's been accurate. He's made big plays. He's throwing against leverage, throwing against the right coverage, just making all the right moves. And you can see how advanced he is in that very pro-style offense of the LSU passing game. He's been fun to watch. I just don't think Justin Herbert is it, and I got called out on Twitter for this by box score scouts and all the like. Look, you can throw for 280 yards and four touchdowns, but when two of those touchdowns are long screen passes, and I'm not talking Tua where he finds the hot route and checks it down to the correct player. I'm talking design screens where Herbert catches a snap and knows to turn to his left and throw the ball to the running back. There is no difficulty involved in that, so I'm not going to give him credit. I am going to, however, knock him for the terrible throws and decisions and bad accuracy and just lack of situational awareness that he shows in all these big games. I saw plenty of that in the first half. And that's why I knock him. This guy's a project. This guy's physically gifted, but man, I'll be damned if he's not Tannehill 2.0. I don't want any part of Justin Herbert. 
Jake Fromm had a game you can't evaluate because it was a downpour, had 35 passing yards on 12 attempts. And Jordan Love, just more mistakes continue to pile up for him, but he makes those crazy, crazy rare off-script plays every single week and big plays down the field. So quarterbacks remains Tua up top. Joe Burrow really making a push, but still he's far behind Tua. I think he might have a chance for QB2 at this point. Definitely a first-round pick. Jake Fromm for me is next. I'll go Jordan Love 4, and we'll stay with Justin Herbert at 5. Jalen Hurts might work his way into this conversation, but still, I don't think that he's playing a pro-style quarterback right now, taking advantage of a lot of open space in that passing game. He's been terrific, don't get me wrong, and we'll watch more of him as things go along. I just don't think he goes in the first round this year, and so because of that, I don't see a point for watching him that closely. Maybe we will later on in the podcast, but for now, he remains off the list. So, those were the quarterbacks. We'll come back on tomorrow's show and talk more about the rest of the guys in the article. We're short on time today, and we'll fill out the Tuesday podcast with the college scouting reports from non-quarterbacks from this week in college football. Go to LockedOnDolphins.com. Check it out for yourself. There's video threads from all those college games up there. Of course, the post-game recap column on LockedOnDolphins.com, taking a look at Dolphins versus Bills, and of course, the tank tracker all up on LOD.com. But as for today's show... That is going to be my time. You all, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Leave us a rating. Leave us a review. Check out the other Lockdown Sports family of podcasts for all the local and national coverage of your favorite teams. Give me a follow on Twitter. It's at Wingfield NFL. The show is at Lockdown Fins. Keep up to date on the Daily Dolphins blog over at LockdownDolphins.com. You guys have a great rest of your night. We'll talk to you again tomorrow on Tuesday for another edition of the Lockdown Dolphins podcast, your daily dose for Miami Dolphins football. Fins up. Said we live for competition, but it wasn't that boring. She got bored.